read Wilkie Collins to us, they're the most untouchable authors of classic literature. But to their contemporaries, well, that's another matter altogether. This is Lit Slashing, a weekly podcast bringing you history's most notorious bad, backhanded, and brutal reviews of literary classics. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd. And I'm Dr. Eleanor Dumbbell. And this week we are going to be slashing Charles Dickens. Woo! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's so good. Um, yeah, probably the most famous author of the 19th century. I don't know what else to say about him, really. Mm-hmm. He's, he's Dickens. If you haven't heard of him, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure why you're listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I should give a disclaimer in that I do talk a lot of rubbish about Dickens, but I do genuinely really love his work. And the book that I found a review of today is definitely solidly in my top three favourite books. It's actually the first Victorian novel I ever read, so Mm. I have a lot of love for it. So this is a review of Our Mutual Friend from the London Review in 1865. Worthwhile to notice that this is towards the end of his career. The energy of youth yet remains, but it is united with the deeper insight of maturer years. Not that we mean to say Mr Dickens has outgrown his faults. They are as obvious as ever, sometimes even trying our patience rather hard. A certain extravagance in particular scenes and persons, a tendency to caricature and grotesqueness, and a something here and there which savours of the melodramatic, as if the author had been considering how the thing would tell on the stage are to be found in Our Mutual Friend as in all this great novelist's productions. The tender rind wherein they were cut in youth has become hard bark long since, and the incisions are fixed forever. To rail at them is simple waste of time, besides implying a great deal of ingratitude on the part of the railer. We shall therefore make but brief allusion here to the characters of Wegg and Venus, who appear to us in the highest degree unnatural, the one being a mere phantasm, and the other a non-entity and shall pass on to a consideration of the more solid parts of the book, in which Mr Dickens's old mastery over human nature is once more made splendidly apparent. The book teems with characters and throbs with action, but it may perhaps be objected that there is a want of some one conspicuous figure dominating over the rest and affording a fixed centre to all this moving wealth of life. John Rokesmith must, we suppose, be regarded as the hero, but he is certainly not the chief character, nor the most interesting. Though in many respects well drawn, he does not greatly enlist our sympathies, perhaps because his motives of action are strange and improbable. Indeed, the whole story of old Harmon's bequest, and what arises out of it, strikes us as being faulty. This, we are aware, is to proclaim a serious defect in the novel, as such, since we have here the basis of the whole fiction. We must confess that in reading our mutual friend from month to month, we cared very little as to what became of old Harmon's property, excepting in as far as the ultimate disposal of that sordid aggregation of wealth affected the development of two or three of the chief characters. The final explanation is a disappointment. The whole plot in which the deceased Harmon, Boffin, Wegg and John Rokesmith are concerned is wild and fantastic, wanting in reality and leading to a degree of confusion which is not compensated by any additional interest in the story. 
that the son John Harmon, known through the greater part of the book as John Rokesmith, should come back to England under the circumstances related, should disappear as related, should live for months at the house of his childhood's friends, the Boffins, without being discovered, and should then be suddenly found out without any sufficient explanation, that Mr Boffin should get entangled with a man like Wegg, that granting the entanglement Wegg, with all his cunning, should make his calculations with such transparent stupidity taking no account of the Dutch bottle which he has seen dug up by Boffin from the dust heap, and which contains, as the reader all along foresees, the later will which nullifies the will relied on by Wegg for forcing Boffin to give up half his property. That the coarse and insolent treatment of Rokesmith by Boffin, and the growing miserliness of the latter, maintained at all times and before all people, should be a mere trick concocted between the two, to turn the regards of proud little Bella Wilfer towards John, and to cure the young lady of her sordid aspirations, and that all this, when the right moment arrives, should be verbally set forth, as in those explanations which we find at the end of plays, when the characters range themselves before the footlights, make their confessions, and unravel the imbroglio. These are features in Mr Dickens's story which we cannot but regard as in the highest degree improbable, and as detracting from the merit of the book as a whole. The explanation given towards the close of the miserly ways and speeches of Mr Boffin is particularly unsatisfactory, for it has the effect of making what would otherwise have been a very masterly development of character comparatively poor, forced and artificial. The termination of Mr Dickens's novels is often hurried, and such is the case in the present instance. The complication of events does not work itself clear by a slow and natural process, but is, so to speak, roughly torn open. And even before we were halfway through the book, the mystery concerning John Rokesmith is explained in an equally objectionable manner. Young Rokesmith, or Harmon, tells himself his own previous history in a sort of mental soliloquy, and they helpfully give a note here to say, in which a long series of events is minutely narrated, evidently for no other purpose than to inform the reader. It is surprising that so experienced a romance writer as Mr Dickens could not have designed some more artful means of revealing that portion of his design. So this person has a lot of I mean, it sounds like they're like me, like they really enjoy Dickens's fiction, but every so often they're like, hang on, you can't just get away with this because you're Dickens. Right, yeah. I, I kind of liked the way they were dancing around, like calling him old and set in his ways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, which like, he has a very, very clear style. It's kind of like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, actors who are kind of typecast, right? Like he's, you know, you always know if you're reading a Dickens novel. So I think that's fair to say, but also very amusing. <laughs> and also it's kind of like, if it works, if it sells books, then why would he change it? Right, yeah. Yeah. But I do agree with them where they're like, he's more skilled than just having John Rokesmith tell his own story to himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of out of the blue. <laughs> I mean, I get what they're saying, but also, I think at this point in his career, he'd kind of earned the right to be a bit formulaic. Yeah. And do some slightly weird things. Yeah, but like, a big expository dump. I don't think he gets a pass on that bit. I think that's the most fair piece of this whole review. <laughs> yeah. And also, like, I find it really interesting that that is one of the main criticisms of Bulwer Lytton. It's the same kind of expository, someone somehow knowing something that hadn't happened to them, which obviously isn't what's happening, he- happening here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, I think it's like a certain... Not really necessarily a school, but like maybe a cohort of mm. novelists who, yeah, like that was that was the thing. But then like the market and sort of genre expectations outpace their 
thing, but they still like have a brand so they can still keep cashing in on it even though it's lazy writing. <laughs> I don't know. I think the other thing that comes out here is that Dickens, obviously, if anyone doesn't know, one thing that he really enjoyed was doing speaking tours. He's famous for this, um, mm-hmm. going out and performing the death of Nancy for people. Yeah. He loved yeah. theatre. And I think they they really pick up on, up on something where they're like, yeah, he seems to want to be writing a play, but he's writing a novel. Mm-hmm. But still, the yeah, the expository don't, wouldn't work very well in a play anyway, so, eh. Yeah, yeah. If you would like to leave an expository dump in our reviews, please go ahead and do so. We hope it's a positive one. <laughs> so you can find us at litslashingpod on Twitter, or our website is litslashing.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co